Crosspoint Church's weekly sermon audio from lead pastor Brad Evangelista. For more information about Crosspoint, visit InsideCrosspoint.com. Amen. Good morning. How are you? All right, let's open our Bibles to Hebrews chapter 10, which, as you can tell, is not John chapter 4. We're taking a little break from our series through John on this first Sunday of May to think about life together as a local church. So open to Hebrews 10. If you're, if you're not real familiar with where that is, it's towards the end of the New Testament. And we're going to be in verses 19 through 25 this morning. And then uh, next week, actually, Reuben Moyana is going to preach uh, also not in John, and so then we'll conclude, or we'll get back into John chapter 4 in a few weeks. So I don't think it needs to be said that we've had a, a challenging year, all of us on some level. This week I'm going to be with some pastors in a network that I'm part of, and we get together yearly for a retreat, and we're, we're going to this place called Milwaukee, Wisconsin. I, I think it's in the middle part of the country. I've never been there before. I don't know why we're going there, but that's where we're meeting. And talking to these brothers throughout this year, uh, various types of churches, sizes of churches, different parts of the country, it's been encouraging to hear that all of us on some level or another have been going through similar things as we have been negotiating through uh, what it looks like to be the body of Christ in this this time of, of pandemic, and, and I think about our life together as a local church and how <clears throat> this past year and a half has been marked by hard and imperfect decisions that we've had to make along the way, and seeing people in this church that have been affected uh, deeply in, in deeply uh, difficult ways, and to see others who have maybe uh, less, for, for, for less legitimate reasons, have allowed this to sort of cause them to drift away and then to see others sort of push in. Is, it's just been a strange cauldron of spiritual emotions that have brought us to this point today where I want to encourage us on this first Sunday of May as we are seeking to return to a kind of normal church posture as best we can in these days to give you a, a pastoral word of encouragement and exhortation about what that might look like, look like in the life of our church. So I'm going to read verses 19 through 25. Hebrews in many ways is, and I always like to give a little context as we dive in the middle of a book, or in this case towards the end of a book, because it's our custom here to sequentially preach through books of the Bible most of the time. And so as we jump into towards the end of this letter of Hebrews, which Lord willing we will preach through verse by verse someday, the theme of Hebrews is that the writer of Hebrews is writing to some Jewish Christians who were tempted because of, a variety, because of a variety of things, probably persecution, they were tempted to fall back and go back to their old ways, the old covenant. And so the writer of Hebrews is very concerned with, with the persecution that they're facing for being Christians and the fact that they are possibly shrinking back from that. And so he's writing to them about how Jesus is superior to the Old Testament, to to Moses, he's superior to angels, and he, his sacrifices are superior to the Old Testament sacrifices. And in a way, our text in Hebrews 10, verses 19 through 25, is a, a kind of summary of the whole message of Hebrews. So let me read it, 
And then I want us to think about, in this text, as we work through it, as we prepare our hearts to come to the table and receive communion together, I want us to think about two things from this text as we apply it. What Jesus has done and is doing, and then what we are to do in response to what Jesus has done. So let me read the text. Verse 19. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Well, let me pray one more time and ask the Lord to help us. Lord, thank you for this passage. Thank you for this day. Thank you for the first Sunday of May. Thank you for everyone that is here and listening this morning. Make us more like your son. Make this church more like Jesus. And for any that are watching or sitting here this morning that don't know you, Lord, would you give them a heart of faith so that they can believe do wonderful things among us, I pray, Lord. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. I want us to see in this text quickly what Jesus has done and is doing. I think that's what the first few verses tell us. So first, look again at verse 20. This, this text clearly tells us that Jesus in his life and his death and his resurrection and his ascension has first opened up a new and living way for us. Look at verse 20. It says that by his blood, in other words, by his work on the cross, Jesus, verse 20, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is through his flesh. So Jesus has, has opened up this way. What does that mean? Well, we know that the whole story of the Bible in many ways is that all mankind has fallen into sin as we've heard prayed and sung about already. And we are by nature separated from God by our sin. And the Old Testament story is a story of redemption promised and redemption begun. And it's all pointing to the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross. And Jesus' life and death and resurrection are the story of redemption fulfilled. And this passage here is just a kind of mini explanation of the gospel, that we were separated from God by our sin, but because of what Jesus has done and only what Jesus has done alone, we are brought near. We are, what was separated us, this curtain of, of sin, this curtain that blocked us from God because of his holiness and our fallenness, it has been removed and we are now able to be in fellowship with God again. The implications of what Jesus has done are so obvious if we were to scan the New Testament. He has made us alive. We were dead in our sins and we've been made alive. He brought us back to life. And that's the, the very basis of the gospel. Not, it's not something that we do. It's something that Jesus has done to us. Ephesians 2 verse 4. We were dead in our sins, but he's made us alive. 
He's justified us. In other words, he's, he's declared us to be innocent before God, where we were once sinners and guilty. He has justified us and declared us as innocent. And that's why Paul can write in Romans 8, verse 1, that there is therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. But he hasn't just made us alive and justified us. He's, he's adopted us into his family. And now we're part of the family of God. And now, even though we may have grown up in different places and different cultures and different families biologically, we are adopted. That means that if you're a believer in Jesus, you have more in common with another believer in Jesus on the other side of the world than you do even with your own blood relative that doesn't know Jesus. And we're adopted into this family. And he has not just made us alive and justified us and adopted us, but he has began this process in us called sanctification, whereby he guarantees that we will be transformed slowly and over time, and that that process of transformation will be completed someday. In fact, it's the day, capital D, verse 25, that we see drawing near, where we will stand before him, and he promises that all of his children that he's made alive, that he's opened up this new and living way for, that he has put his spirit in, that he's begun this process of sanctification for, that every single one of them will make it all the way to that day. And we will stand before him on that day, and all of our sin will be vanquished. Every contrary thought, every embarrassing moment, every reason for shame will finally and fully fall away, and it will be gone, and we will be before him. That's what he, it means that he's opened up a new and living way for us. But he's done more than just that in the past on the cross. He has a present ministry. So it's not just what he has done, but it's what he is doing for us. Look at verse 21. And it says, since we have a great high priest over the house of God. So the second thing that Jesus has done and is doing is that he is presently, think about this, interceding for us as our great high priest. Look at Hebrews chapter 7 verse 25 on the screen a few chapters before Hebrews 10. It says about Jesus's present ministry for every believer in this room and in the world today. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him. Listen to this. Since he always lives to make intercession for them. Romans chapter 8 verse 34 says essentially the same thing. Paul writes, who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is, present tense, is interceding for us. So consider that, dear ones, the, the, the Son of God that has bore the wrath of God the Father on the cross for us and has made us alive and has guaranteed that all these things will happen is presently ensuring that that will come to pass by right now daily praying for you if you're a Christian. Now that, is this, is this microphone on? I don't know what, what's going on. Jesus who has gone to the cross and bore the wrath of God, 
and is guaranteed that you will make it home is presently ensuring that will happen by his intercession for you right now. Right now. You ever told anybody that's just kind of Christianese, oh yeah, man, I'll, I'll pray for you. And sometimes we mean that and sometimes we don't. It's just kind of a Christian way of moving the conversation along often and shame on us for that. Jesus is right now, as the high priest over the house of God, advocating for you to the Father for your deepest need. That is glorious news. And now this text now draws our attention from what Jesus has done and is doing and now gives us some implications, some imperatives, some things that now we must do. And before we get into these imperatives, which I want us to spend some time thinking about and applying, applying to our life together as a church, I want you to see this beautiful in-between of the Christian life, okay? So verses 19, 20, and 21 are all about what Jesus has done and is doing and he's guaranteed and if we could fill in the blanks with the rest of what the new testament in fact the whole bible says about the guarantee of god and if we would see at the end of verse 25 where it says that this day is drawing near we would see that this process of salvation once begun by god is not something that is left up in the air hoping that it will be done that there is a certainty to your salvation. That's why Paul writes in Philippians chapter 1 that he who began a good work in you will carry it to completion. There's a guarantee there. That's why Paul writes in 1 Thessalonians 5 that he who, who has promised will do it. He is faithful to bring your sanctification to completion. That's why Romans chapter 8, verses 29 and 30, talk about this process of how we are justified, past tense, and how we are also glorified, past tense. And so Paul is speaking about the work that Jesus is presently doing in us that is in the future, that day when we will stand before him, finally and fully sanctified, even though it is in time, in the future, in the certain mind of God it's spoken of as already done that that's that's what is happening in the work of the gospel and yet in the middle of what Jesus has done and what Jesus has guaranteed will certainly happen it, to the point where it's past tense referred to in scripture we are in this in-between time where God in his mysterious kind providence commands us to bring about the very things that he has guaranteed to bring about by his sovereign hand in our lives. So there's this kind of beautiful mixture of necessity, of divine sovereignty, and our work. And that's where we find ourselves in the balance of this text. So what are we to do? Well, it's very clear. Verse 22, it says, let us draw near. 
Let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. We can draw near. We can come. We can come. We can gather with the people of God. Not because you're good enough, dear one, but because he's good enough. That's the good news of the gospel. Regardless of your week, regardless of whether you are caught up with your reading plan, regardless of where you are in your sanctification, you can draw near not based on your temporary holiness, but because of his. We can draw near. In verse 23, the second thing we can do that we are to do is we are to hold Fast. We're to cling on to, we're to grip. This word in the original language has the connotation of restraining and tying something down so it doesn't blow away. I want you to see the tension. Jesus is commanding us by our efforts. The writer of Hebrews is commanding us by our efforts to do something that the Bible has already guaranteed will take place. Hold fast. Do this. Grip, hold on, tie it down, keep it from blowing away. And notice it's a communal effort. He says, let us do this. And then in these remaining three things that we see here, we see this, this communal effort just really expanded. Because in a sense, you might think, well, drawing near is something that I must do and holding fast is something that I must do. Although it's written in the plural, it's something that all of us do together. But we can't escape it here in verse 24. Listen to verse 24. It says, And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. So we are to stir. We're to think about. We are to consider. We are to, we are to discover through direct observation. That's the literal meaning of that word, stir up. We are to discover. We're to think about. Through direct observation, we're to, we're to scan the room, as it were, with our eyes off of ourselves, and we are to consider others and their situation, and we are to spend time conspiring, considering how we can use our energies as fellow brothers and sisters to, to provoke, to stir up, to cultivate love and good works in other people around us in the body of Christ. And then he says we are not to neglect to meet together. And this is an obvious implication. And I realize that over this past year, for some of us, that's been challenging for legitimate reasons. My, my concern pastorally is that for some still, maybe for illegitimate reasons, this has caused a kind of spiritual apathy. And let me just say that when one of God's sheep is separated from the flock, they are more vulnerable. But spiritual vulnerability never really declares itself for what it is. It, it, it's always deceitful. It always sort of lies. It lulls you to sleep. It makes you think you're okay. It, it, it causes you to just sort of start to prioritize yourself over others. And before you know it, you're, it's like a riptide that pulls you out to sea and you just don't realize that, you know, you thought you were just sort of you know, a couple hundred, hundred feet out from the shore, and before you know it, you look up, you're separated from the flock, and you're miles out to sea. That's why the writer of Hebrews, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, knows 
how essential it is for Christians to meet together. And here's one of the things that works against that in our culture is that we have oftentimes in church culture presented the church service as this incredibly exciting, awesome experience where you are entertained and fed. And when you actually have to do real life with ordinary, unspectacular people who are hard to be around, it becomes sort of like it's just not what we sort of desire in our flesh. And so it's very easy in our church culture to neglect the unexciting, ordinary rhythm of gathering together with fellow believers. And finally, he says, we should encourage one another. Look at verse 25. He says, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but, but encouraging one another. Speaking words of life to one another. Friends, this is written to every Christian, regardless of your personality type. This is an imperative for all of us. We're to encourage one another. And all the more, as you see the day drawing near, I want you to see the tension. Do you see Jesus' promise that this will happen? But yet we are, through our efforts communally as a church family, called, commanded to be part of the way that God brings about his guaranteed end. And we are to encourage encourage one another. Here's the point, I think, of this text, at least the second part of this text. If I could just say it in a sentence. It is that God calls every Christian to be in community with other believers and in some way to help them follow Jesus more faithfully. Let me say it again. God calls every Christian regardless of your personality type, regardless of your sanctification level, regardless of your biblical knowledge, God calls every Christian to be in community with other believers. And I think implicit there in that statement, if we were to scan the New Testament, would be a formal connection to a local church where people know you and you're responsible to them. That's what it means biblically to be in community. is not just to generally claim to be a Christian, but to have that confession be part of, be validated, and be responsible and obligated to other believers. So God calls every Christian to be with, in community with other believers and in some way, Help them follow Jesus more faithfully. Maybe stated even more succinctly is just the title of the sermon. Friends, we need one another. We need one another as Christians in community. And so for the next couple minutes before we come to the Lord's table, I just want to give you and I want to issue you a call and hear me, dear ones, that through this year we've, we've made decisions that have, have been hard, and, and here we are. We're, we're starting to gather back together with more and more people coming, and we're on the precipice of, of summer, and then before we know it, there will be a new school year that will, will come upon us in, in August, and up to this point, we, we've been We've been trying to be as, as exceedingly cautious and gentle and encouraging, and, and we still want to be all of those things. But friends, we as, as pastors and elders sense that it is time for us as a church to strive to push in to 
return to a normal posture of church life. Now, that's going to look different for different people, we understand. But we need to press in. My fear is that we will sort of let the challenges of this past year kind of reset the table for us, and it will be a kind of step back from what the Bible calls us to of communal biblical Christianity. And my concern is, is that if we don't press on, if we don't heed this text, we will allow ourselves to get in a kind of reset of a new normal that is a kind of unbiblical way of living together. And so I'm asking, I'm pleading with, I'm calling on behalf of my fellow brother elders on every member of Crosspoint to consider, to think about how you might stir up the body to love and good deeds. What does that look like for you? Well, one, one clear way that I think we, we need to strive and push over the course of the coming weeks and months to strive to return to regular rhythms of church life as best we are able is through our offering a full operational children's ministry. Now, we have not been able, on any given Sunday prior to COVID, there would be between 200 and 250 children here in this building, not in this room, elementary age and below, being ministered gospel truth, not being babysat, not just being fed goldfish and given a crayon to color some sheets, which I know those things can be helpful too. I'm not against goldfish. <laughs> Crackers. But the, I'm not against goldfish either. I just don't, I, I don't know where that. But on any given Sunday prior to this past COVID era, we would have hundreds of children hearing gospel truth. And I realize that some of you may have different convictions about children's ministry. Let me give you our sort of broad conviction about children's ministry. You as a parent, you as a parent are the primary shepherd and discipler of your child's heart. You are responsible. Children's ministry, youth ministry is not the place for you to drop your kids off so that they hear about Jesus. That primarily should happen in your home, okay? And don't buy the lie that just because you don't know as much about the Bible as some other super mom on Facebook, that somehow you're not equipped to lead your child in spiritual things. That's a lie. If, if, if you feel some pressure, if you need to get better, get, get off your rear and grow in grace. And stop binging Netflix and, and, and be part of a Bible study and come to church more and just, just grow so that you can be. You don't have to stay where you are. You realize that, right? But you, God has given that child to you and in eternity past. He ordained every one of their days before one of them came to be. And he knew that that child would be in your home. And now you are the steward over that child's life. But God has also called us to be part of a spiritual family where we help each other. And so we think it's appropriate for as a church family to 
augment, not replace, but to augment the gospel ministry of imperfect parents in the home by gathering together with clear spiritual biblical instruction in our children's ministry. And in order to do that, though, we need the whole church family to participate in this communal effort. And so, again, prior to COVID, we would ask members of Crosspoint to serve about 10 times a year in children's ministry, once every five weeks in a room, helping to corral children or helping to help teachers teach the lesson that we have from a very good curriculum. And Although many of you may be very equipped and able to be the primary disciples of your children in the home, one of the kind graces about Crosspoint is that we constantly have visitors, many of them military people, many of them people who probably think that they're Christians but are not, and they often have children. And the opportunity that we have for a kind of family outreach and evangelism through a robust Sunday morning children's ministry program is great. It's, it's enormous. But if we allow on the backside of this pandemic to cause all of the people who were previously serving in that way, and friends, I realize it's hard. I realize, I realize when it's your Sunday to serve in children's ministry, inevitably I preach the, a 65-minute sermon. I, I get that. I get that. I get it. I'm working on it. I'm working on it. I'm working on it. I am. I am. I am. Man, I'm, I'm, I need to get better. I do. I'm not kidding around. I need to get better. But, but on that Sunday, you come and you, you serve. And this couple has come, this decided to visit a church. And, and now they come and they, they give their little child into your hands for that one Sunday that you're serving, 10 maybe out of a whole year, and, and that child hears some biblical truth, and they bring it up in the car on the way home, and that mother feels good, and it does something, it, it, it opens up, it paves the way for the Holy Spirit to work, and it's you, it's you living out verse 24, it's you considering, stirring up, having your hand on a swivel, and don't let on the backside of this pandemic, as we're starting Lord willing to come out of it, don't let us settle into a kind of hunkered down, introspective, more self-concerned mode of church life. It will be a terrible fruit of this thing. But let it go the other way, dear ones. Let it go the other way. We need people to re-engage. We need volunteers for VBS. We need more community groups. We need more members of Crosspoint who, who... who love other people, who have a home that you can open up. You don't need to be a Bible scholar. You need to love Jesus and love his people, even if you do that imperfectly, which, oh, by the way, all of us do. And you can open up your home and you can read scriptures and ask some questions on a, on, a, on a discussion guide and you can just make people feel at home. You can do that. We need more of that. We want to open back up our Wednesday night fellowship dinners and studies. We want more opportunities for large group discipleship. We need more men's and women's Bible studies, church-based, where you are with people in your church. We need more of them. We need to return to Sunday morning classes where we are offering. We're excited about some things that we want to do for Sunday morning classes where we have some some, some, uh, some series, some, some kind of video-based curriculums to learn about all sorts of wonderful things in the Christian life. And we want to do that 
more. But dear ones, this is a gracious exhortation, I hope, to press on you to say, we have to decide collectively as a church to start stepping in that direction so that we can do these things. Amen? We need this. You need this. This city needs this. Unbelievers that will visit this church in two and three months from now need this. Weak people who are beaten up by sin, who will find this church online, whose lives are a wreck, they need this. They need to walk into a church who is full of people who are ready to stir up one another to love and good deeds. People who know what a joy and what a privilege and yet what a responsibility it is to live in this beautiful tension between knowing what Jesus has done for them so they're freed from this world, knowing where they're going because Jesus has guaranteed it, but yet in some inscrutable way, they are commanded to actually bring about and stir up and work hard for the very things that Jesus has guaranteed to do in their lives. And as they do that, friends, there's no greater thing than to be part of a fruitful body of Christ where people are coming, hearing, being saved, growing, sending people out to dangerous places. Friends, it is better than anything else. It's better. It's better than the nice new home. It's better than the kid who's a great athlete. It's better than the scholarship. It's better than the promotion. And I'm not saying that the Lord is against any of those things. But when they become the focus for you, friends, it's not the biblical Christian life. And so I'm asking, I'm pleading with you for the sake of of what the Lord has called us to do as a church. I'm pleading with you for the sake of souls that will come through here. I'm pleading with you for the sake of your calling and your responsibility and your obedience to the scripture to consider, to spend time, to spend time thinking about, to brainstorm how you might stir up the body to love and good deeds. Now, if you're a believer and you're not yet a member of this church, I think you should be a member of this church. Or, if this church isn't right for you, then I think you should be a member of another gospel-believing, Bible-preaching church. I think that is the clear biblical expectation for every New Testament Christian. I realize that some of you have a kind of allergic reaction to commitment. That's part of the, that's part of the spiritual warfare of living in a kind of self-autonomous culture like America. You realize, that, you realize that we're not living in spiritual neutrality here. You realize that there are cultural mindsets that work against the Christian life. And one of them is this kind of obligation and autonomy that we sort of, this, this sense of autonomy that we feel and a kind of allergicness to any sort of obligation or commitment. 
And, and it's so easy to come up with all sorts of excuses about this church, this bad experience, this, they just want my money, all that kind of stuff. I get all that. I, I get all that. Man, it's, it's, a lot of churches are messes. There's abuses of power. There's all sorts of goofy stuff. I, I, I get all that. I get all that. I, 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 am, I, I understand. But how are you going to obey the Bible? How are you? There's, there's stuff in the Bible about how we're to be so radically committed to one another Read 1 Corinthians 5, just as, as a nice little, as a nice little uh, 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 afternoon pleasure reading before your nap. And in 1 Corinthians 5, Paul talks to the church at Corinth, who is putting up with this debauchery in the life of one of their church members. And he's saying, he's saying put this person out. They're, they're, they're besmirching the cause of Christ in the community. Put this person out of the believing community. He says, actually, he says, hand this person over to Satan. What does that mean? I think implied in that is like, consider, consider this person out of the church. Well, how can you consider this person out of the church? How can you deal so severely with a person unless there's something to be brought into? My point is, is that we are to know one another. We are to be committed to one another. And so if you're not yet a member of this church, I would love for you to think about coming to our membership class on May 10th and 17th, two successive Monday nights, and you need to attend both of them. Or if this isn't the church for you, we will gladly help you find another Bible-believing church. If you're still just visiting and you're gathering information, don't feel like that's undue pressure to make any decision. Of course, you need to figure things out, and that may take weeks or a couple months. But dear ones, don't just hang out in obscurity. Don't do the Christian life that way. Brothers and sisters, we spend a lot of time, and I end with this, we spend a lot of time here talking about all that the Lord has done. And I don't ever want to stop doing that. We, we preach a God-centered gospel here. A God-centered gospel. And I think that's where we should spend a majority of the time. But I, I don't want to neglect then the implications of a God-centered gospel we talk a lot about what God has done, but let's also consider what we must do. Friends, can I ask you this question? Not, not trying to produce any spiritual guilt on you. What are you doing for the Lord and his people? What are you doing for the Lord and his people? It's the greatest privilege to think about that question and to give yourself to a life of answering that question. Let me pray. Lord, as we come to the table and as we take this bread and this cup, may we, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11, as Springer will read to us in just a moment, May we examine ourselves, and may we also discern the body. May we look around us. The Corinthian Christians were being selfish. And part of the reason for this meal is so that we would wait on one another, that we would love one another. We have this in common. It's communal. That's why it's called communion. So, Lord, let this meal cause us first to look vertically, to remember the cross, to remember what you have done, and then let it cause us to think horizontally how we can love and serve 
one another. Lord, replenish us with this meal. Exhort us with this meal. Humble us with this meal. And make us more like Jesus as we receive together. And it's in his name I pray. Amen.